Well, good afternoon. Let's pray again. God, Lord, you are so good. You are so faithful. And Lord, I pray that as we hear this message from your word, from the book of Ezra, Lord God, that you would open our eyes to a whole new dimension of your covenant faithfulness to your people. God, be honored and glorified and touch every heart in this room. Pierce us with your word. In the name of Jesus, the most high God, we pray. Amen. All right. Well, this morning we are going to be looking at Ezra chapter 5. And I wanted to remind you, uh, and uh, Tim's not here, but I'm going to be piggybacking a little off of his sermon from last week. His statement uh, that kind of launched his sermon was that the people of God must expect opposition and perseverance in the work of the Lord. Uh, Since my message uh, piggybacks off of his message, I would like to um, put up my statement up there, which is, uh, the people of God, by the providence and power of God, will overcome all opposition to the work of God. And I want to read that again, because that's going to guide our lesson today. The people of God, by the providence and power of God, will overcome all opposition to the work of God. We were were reminded last week by Tim that God's people will always have enemies in this world. Beginning with the fall, we have had opposition. From Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God spoke to the serpent and said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. From that point on, the line of the righteous has been at enmity with the line of the serpent. Abel had Cain, David had Goliath, Moses had Egypt, Joshua had Canaan, Noah had an entire generation of mockers and scoffers. And this didn't stop in the Old Testament. Jesus was rejected and murdered by his generation. Of course, we know that behind all this enmity is a devil who desires nothing more than to kill, to steal, and to destroy. There are and always will be those enemies of our Lord who are, by extension, our enemies. And what do we do in response to our enemies? Well, what does Jesus say? Love them. We love our enemies. Well, the message today is going to be on a different sort of enemy, a different sort of opposition to the people of God and to the kingdom of God. That enemy is looking at us when we look in the mirror. That's right. We are sometimes enemies and opposition to the work of God. Like I said earlier, we live in a fallen world, but let's never forget that we live fallen lives in a fallen world. We ourselves are fallen. By the grace of God, he is redeeming and sanctifying us, but we are fallen. Our hope is that glorification one day where the internal work of the sin nature will be forever removed. But for now, we, we have to contend with ourselves. I'd like to read a quote from Dr. Thomas Huxtable. He writes, since the books theme the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and remember, Ezra and Nehemiah were one unit when they were written, so we're referring to them in singular. Since the books 
theme is the manner of rebuilding the house of God, and the house of God refers not only to the building itself, but to the full spiritual life of God's people, it is evident that the book's purpose is to expound a theology of spiritual revival. Ezra and Nehemiah is a scriptural manual for revival. God's people wax and wane during their spiritual journey, and God has given in Ezra and Nehemiah to us. God has given these books to us to, um, to address this perennial issue. And that takes us to, uh, and reminded of the passage in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, which some of you have memorized. It says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete in every good work. And Romans chapter 15, verse 4, um, which states that uh, these things, speaking of the Old Testament, these things were written for our instruction. So the things we're going to be looking at today in Ezra, and we're also going to be looking at the book of Haggai, these things were written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Yes. Is this not, is it falling down. Okay, it's not quite staying. All right, a little better. All right, just let me know if that happens again. So, Ezra and Nehemiah are not merely books of revival. They are covenantal in nature. We see that God has been in a marriage union with Israel since Sinai, and God had divorced Israel in 586 BC because of their covenantal unfaithfulness. But God, being rich in mercy, is bringing his bride back. And that is what we see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So let's go ahead and turn to Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, before we read our text today, um, I do need to review a few things that Tim mentioned last week. And I do need to turn back to chapter four for just a moment in order to do that. So uh, if you'll take a look at the screen here, we have Ezra chapter four, verse four, and then verse 24. And it says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophet, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem, in the name of God of Israel, who was over them. So if you recall from last week how Tim had mentioned that the chronology of chapter 4 is a bit out of order. Ezra writes in chapter uh, 4, in the first few verses, it's a reference to what's going on when the exiles returned back from Babylon. And then you have this parenthesis which goes forward about 100 years later. And then when we get back to 24, we're back in the timeline. Now, that's a little unusual for us today. When we read books, especially historical books, we want to have a sequential flow, don't we? We want to go from year one to year two to year three. Not so much a priority back in antiquity. Uh, they tended to go all over the map, and especially if you, if you will, uh, take a look at some of the Gospels, and the reason why we tend to like the Gospel of Luke a bit more than the others, <laughs> I shouldn't say that, the reason, why, uh, the reason why Luke makes a little more sense at times is because of the chronological nature of Luke. 
but we, we do find in Mark that it, it is a little bit scattered and fragmented in different places, just moving across the timelines. It just wasn't a priority to go in chronological order. So we see in Ezra the exact same thing uh, going, on, going on there. Okay. So if you, for those of you who are interested in some dates here, and some of you are date people, we have 586 B.C. That's when Jerusalem and the temple were demolished. The events of Ezra 4 take place in 536 B.C., which is 50 years later, and the events from the end of chapter 4 into chapter 5 take place in 520 B.C. That means from 536 to 520 B.C., the work of building the temple had come to a halt. So what's going on? Was this, a, was this an ongoing decade and a half of civil persecution, or is something else happening? Well, in order to understand that, we're going to have to go to a different book of the Bible, and like I said, we're going to be spending a little time in the book of Haggai. So you might want to, we don't have slides for this, but you might want to open your Bible to the book of Haggai and keep a finger in the book of Ezra as well. And if you have a phone, use a bookmark instead of your finger. All right. All right. So in order to answer this, uh, we are going to need to look at the book of Haggai. It is because of this lag in building that God raised up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to proclaim a prophetic word from the Lord regarding this matter. And so if you would turn with me to Haggai chapter 1, we're going to see exactly what's going on and what caused this halt in building. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. It reads, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, if you'll pay close attention here, you can see that this verse here in Haggai chapter 1 lines up historically with Ezra chapter 5 verse 1. We have these same events, we have the same date, we have the same time period, we have the same emperor of the Persian Empire. Verse 2 of Haggai, keep reading, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Skip forward to verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hill and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. So, what's going on? Well, it's evident that the people of God had shifted their priorities and lost interest in building the temple. 
in building the house of God. And this is absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning if you consider what the temple represented to the people of God. It's stunning, but sadly, it is not surprising. You see, this is a perfect Sunday to talk about something like this because we just partook in communion. And communion is a reminder to examine ourselves. That's what the bread and the cup represent. We need to examine ourselves to see where our faithfulness lies. Now, it's easy to judge the Israelites for their idolatry, for their faithlessness, for their roller coaster commitment to the God of the Old Test- in the Old Testament. But I think we need to look in the mirror. We need to ask ourselves, are we really any better? The pastor Andrew Murray McShane once said, the seed of every sin known to man resides in my own heart. So my goal this afternoon is to have us examine our own hearts in light of this historical text. The people of God had lost interest in the kingdom of God. What started as an external opposition in chapter 4 had morphed into an internal opposition. In this case, spiritual complacency toward the things of God and a reprioritization toward personal goals and desires. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with personal goals and desires. The problem is the priority. Maybe a conversation went a little like this. You know, if we can't build the temple right now, we're facing all this opposition, we might as well do a little remodeling of our homes. You know, since we've been back from Babylon, I've been meaning to update our bathroom and our kitchen. Need some work. And you know what? We do need a fresh paint of coat on the outside of the house, don't we? Meanwhile, as Sinclair Ferguson states, the hammers and the saws and the axes made no sounds. The temple was not being built. The house of God was disdained. You see, they had forsaken the work of the Lord. But even more, they had convinced themselves that this was a good thing. Look back at Haggai chapter 1 verse 2. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. We're not saying no to God. We're just saying not yet. It's not the right time. Life is too complicated now. Maybe when the kids grow up and leave the house, we'll have a little more time. Maybe after I retire a lot of time after I retire, maybe. And so it went for 16 years. 16 years, the building of God was not being built. We can sound so wise. We can fool ourselves. Uh, we can fool others as well. But notice what God says through his prophet Haggai in verse 2. Notice these chilling words. He says, these people. Not my people, but these people. That's significant. God is saying, you're not my people. You are, but you're not acting like it. You are acting like strangers to me and to the things of God. God chastises his people with these words, but he chastises them in his love. His words cut like a knife. But it is that knife of redemption. It is that knife of Come to your senses. 
reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12, 4 verse 12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And that knife is cutting. Their hypocrisy was exposed. Their lingo wasn't as pious and holy as it was made out to be. It was pure and simple sin. It was putting God last and putting ourselves first. Now, let's remember that these people did have hard lives. They returned from captivity to a pile of rubble. They had to start over. They had to rebuild their lives. They were exiled to a foreign land. But now many of them felt their homes that they returned to was just another exile. And so they wanted to build a home. They wanted to build a family. They wanted to build a business. But God says, build my house first. Does that remind you of something Jesus said? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what? All these things will be added to you. All these things will be added. But first, first and foremost, seek the kingdom of God. Why was God so adamant about his house? And why does Jesus reiterate this in Matthew chapter 6? Well, let's review a bit what was so important about this building project. I'm going to take you all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. I'll be quick. Okay. In Genesis chapter 1, God created this world to be his temple. He starts with the Garden of Eden, where, he command, where God communed with Adam in the cool of the day. God commissioned Adam and Eve to take dominion over the entire world, making it his temple. But then the fall happened. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 6. God saw how wicked mankind had become and how his temple had been polluted. So God decides to recreate the earth. And when Noah gets off the ark, Noah makes an offering, an offering to God, serving as a priest in the new temple. In Genesis chapter 11, humanity assembles at Babel. By the way, Babel means confusion, but it also means gateway to God. You see, their intention was to settle in Shinar and to build a temple, but that was not God's intention. It was not God's purpose and plan for them to do that. And so God thwarted their plan. Fast forward to Exodus. God saves Israel out of Egypt, brings them to Sinai, and beginning in chapter 20, we see terms, and you may have never seen it this way before, we see in chapter 20, with the beginning of the Ten Commandments, we see the terms of a marriage covenant between God and Israel. Terms of a marriage which culminates in chapter 24. And let me just read this to you, chapter 24, verse 7. Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is a blood covenant signifying God's commitment and covenantal marriage with his people in the book of Exodus. This action is confirming a marriage covenant. Immediately, what happens? Moses and 70 elders went up to the mountain to have a meal with God. In the temple, in the temple, there were three tiers. The outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place, also known as the holy of holies. 
all clean Israelites were allowed to enter into the outer court. The priests conducted their work in the holy place, which was the second tier. But only the high priest was allowed to enter into that third tier, the most holy place, the holy of holies, and then only once a year on the day of atonement to offer sacrifices for the people. Here in Exodus 24, we see Moses going up to the summit of the mountain where the elders came in and had the meal. And then we see the people in the outer court at the base of the mountain. So the motif of temple is found all through the scriptures. And we see this over and over again. When Israel was established in the promised land, Solomon built a temple for God. This temple was complete in about 920 BC, which puts us, interestingly enough, about 400 years before this event, these events that are taking place in Ezra chapter 5. He builds the temple on top of Mount Moriah, the same place where God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, we find this. This is significant because just as God provided a ram in the place of Isaac, the people offered animal sacrifices in the place of themselves for their sins. And of course, this would foreshadow the once-for-all sacrifice that Christ would make on behalf of his people. But I want you to understand, it was never God's intention for Israel to keep this all to themselves. Because if you'll remember the Abrahamic Uh, covenant and the words God spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 he says I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all nations the temple was to be salt and light to the Gentiles in Romans chapter 3 verse 2 Israel is said to be entrusted entrusted with the oracles of God what does that mean and how does that apply to what I'm talking about entrusted not to hoard but to give it away to whom to the nations. God had blessed Israel to make the Gentiles jealous. Hear that again. God had blessed Israel to make the Gentiles jealous. And just an observation here, but in the New Testament, that's reversed. And so this temple represented God's mercy and God's grace toward his people and to all nations. And more importantly, it foreshadowed something or rather someone even greater. In John chapter 1 verse 14, It says, regarding Jesus Christ, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That word is tabernacled, which is the same word for the temple in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ was God's holy temple walking among us, an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people, people of every tribe, language, people, and nation. It represented communion with the living God. So, that's the temple. And now we see what the temple represents. And I just scratched the surface. There is tons and tons of references to the temple in the Old Testament and God's people's relationship to the temple. And and just wait till we get to the New Testament. But do you see the problem? Do you see the problem with Israel's procrastination and waiting and delaying to build this house of God? Do you see why God is indignant with his people here in Ezra chapter 4 and 5? And do you understand what these people were actually putting off? It is the grace of God to raise up prophets to rebuke his people. Without a prophetic word, the Bible says, the people perish. The people cast off restraint. 
But God moves his people to remember him, to fear him, and to seek him. And it is because of this word, this word of warning, this word of rebuke, that the people are invited to examine themselves and to come back. So now we're going to look at back to Ezra, chapter 5 and verse 2. Let's see how the people responded to what God had said through his prophet. And I didn't have time to cover Zechariah, because if you'll remember, both Haggai and Zechariah were raised up. I challenge you, go home and read the book of Zechariah. It's a, it's a wonderful read. Um, it has a little apocalyptic literature in it as well, so that might be a, a good study. Anyway, chapter 5, verse 2. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, uh, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Now, just a little background on these guys. Zerubbabel and Jeshua were administrators over the returning exiles. Zerubbabel is a Babylonian name, meaning seed of Babylon, which is significant because, like many of the Israelites who were taken away to Babylon, they were given new names and new identities. So Zerubbabel comes back carrying that name. He is the son of Shealtiel, who was a descendant of King David. So if the line of David had not been broken, he would most likely have been the king of Israel. Jeshua was the son of Jehozadak, first high priest after the Babylonian captivity. And in the book of Zechariah, Jeshua also called Joshua. So when you see Jeshua and Joshua, that means that that's the same person, is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. In Zechariah chapter 3, an entire chapter about him points forward to the work of Christ on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. So these two men, supported by Haggai and Zechariah, are doing the work of God. Now, remember I said keep your finger in Haggai chapter 1? We're going to go back and look at verse 12 in chapter 1. So if you want to turn back there for a second. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet and the Lord their God had, had sent to him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So notice something here in verse 12. It says, the people feared the Lord. And if you look back at Ezra chapter 4, verse 4, notice this. I'll just read it to you. It says, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. So what are we noticing here? It's a subtle shift, isn't it? It's a shift from the fear of man to the fear of God. This fear of the Lord is what we are instructed to have. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Proverbs say. A fear that conquers the fears of man is found in the fear of God. It is this fear that gives them the courage and the impetus to push through the next obstacle. And there is an obstacle coming. There always is. Verse 3 of Ezra chapter 5. Ezra chapter 5 verse 3. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province, beyond the river 
And Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them, What are the names of the men who are building this building? So just a little history here. In 530 BC, which is 10 years before this event, Cyrus, the king of Persia, Cyrus the Great, died. And when he died, as usual back then, the empire went into political upheaval, civil war, rebellion, everything bad. Eventually, Darius I would emerge as the new leader of the Persian Empire in 522 BC. So for about eight years, there had been civil war. Now, during this time of turmoil, many small rebellions had to be put down through the empire. So, Tatanai is, it's no surprise that he was concerned about what was going on here in Israel with the rebuilding project. What are these guys up to? Now, all our historical records, records indicate that Tatanai was a fair and a just judge. He had no issues with Israel, but his loyalty was to the emperor, and, he and so therefore he demanded an investigation. Now, verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. And I'm going to keep reading to the end of the chapter. Um, skipping down to verse 7. Regarding the letter, it says, To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones, and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names, for your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. Verse 17, Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. All right, a few observations here. First, in verse 5, notice, even though there was another obstacle that had presented itself, it says, the eye of God was on the elders of the Jews. Again, the fear of God overruled the fear of man. God's prophetic, prophetic word through Haggai and also Zechariah, along with the strong leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, gave uh, the people courage to get back to work and to stay the course. Second, note the humility and contrition in response to the governor. Verse 12, because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylon. This self-examination and awareness 
was completely absent prior to the fall of Jerusalem. But here we see genuine contrition, which serves as a testimony of God's righteous judgment. And it is a testimony that the Holy Spirit had granted repentance to the Jewish people. So as I wrap up here, I'd like to give some concluding exhortations. And uh, we can probably go ahead and have the worship team come on up. Number one, a reminder. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. These things, these things that we have studied today were written for our instruction so that through encouragement and through the endurance, through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. We have much to learn and we have much to obey. Second, in the New Testament, the location of the temple shifts from place to person. That person is Christ. And we don't want to miss this. He is the temple, the high priest of the temple and the atoning sacrifice for sins which took place in the temple. But in the new covenant, we are also temples of the living God. Do you know that in the New Testament, we are called saints? That word means holy. A related word is sanctuary. We are sanctuaries of the living God. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. Do you understand now why God insists that we be holy? Just as the vessels were required to be holy in the temple, we also are to be holy in all our conduct. As he is holy, we are to be holy. Jesus is our king, and our king has commissioned us to build his kingdom. To build his kingdom. How? To pastor, shepherd, evangelize, teach, to be holy, to bear fruit, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and to love one another. This is how we build the temple. Now, I know there are those of you in this room who are laboring and have labored tirelessly at kingdom building. You know there are some of you who care for the needy, who teach adults, youth, children, who minister to the poor, who are sharing the gospel to the lost. You pour out your hearts to your community groups that you are leading. You counsel broken people into the wee hours of the night. And then you wake up in the morning and go do your day job where you also seek to spread the love and grace of God. You make your family your ministry. You pray with and for your children. You make your vocation your ministry, building tables and chairs for the glory of God. You open your home so that the scripture might be taught. My encouragement to you is that your labor is not in vain. God is your reward and your faithfulness is a light in the darkness. Keep shining that light. And finally, for those of us who have been convicted by the Holy Spirit this afternoon for procrastinating, for being complacent, for waiting for a better time to obey the voice of God, this message is for you. Perhaps you're procrastinating something God wants you to do, something that's been on your heart for a long time. Perhaps you're procrastinating the most important call you'll ever receive, and that is to put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. This is something that you cannot delay. Today is the day of salvation. Others might be delaying a call to serve, to use a gift that God has given you, but you haven't quite come forward to share that gift with the body of Christ. Don't delay any longer. If anything we've learned from this text today, the time is now. The time is now. 
I want to encourage you as we are about to pray, if there are any of you who are wrestling with something, some decision that you need to make and you need some prayer, we have some people in this room and community group leaders, I'm kind of calling you forward now, but we have some community group leaders in this room who would be willing to pray for you. So if you have a prayer need and you'd like to pray, if you've been holding back, or for those of you who have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you'd like someone to pray with you about that, please don't hesitate, please don't wait. The day is now. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the prophetic word. We thank you how you love us enough to rebuke us in our idleness, to rebuke us in our procrastination, to open our eyes to the fact that there are many times when we are doing just the opposite of what you said in Matthew 6, verse 33. We seek your kingdom last, and as a result, these things are being taken away. Lord God, we know that if we seek you first, you will add these things to us. We know that you are honored when we put you first. The first and foremost commandment you said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. We know that we fall short of that every single day, Lord. Forgive us. Forgive us, Lord. There is not a soul in this room that obeys that command as we should. We humble ourselves before you. We love you. We ask that you would guide us forward. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.